What would you think if I told you that I am actually an operative for a foreign government? That I've been embedded in this community and in plain sight to be your friend and to be your coworker and your neighbor? And what if I said that I was attempting to activate sleeper agents within the sphere of my influence and that uh, I had nothing short of an insurgence in mind. What if I told you that? Suppose I told you that I meet regularly with the sleepers to impact, impart critical information to them so that they can fulfill their mission. What if I said that to you this morning? What would you think? Now, some of you probably know where I'm going with this, and uh, that probably means you are awakening sleepers. And if you're not sure where I'm going with this, then you need to pay attention, because in the next little bit, I'm going to explain what I mean to you. The Apostle Paul said, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Christians in the first century, the ones who were part of that church that began with the Acts of the Apostles, were considered subversives. They were often viewed as insurgents. And this was due to many of the well-known expressions of their faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw him as nothing short of the Lord. And in those days, the same term applied to the rule of Caesar. And so their devotion to Christ as Lord was a direct defiance of Caesar as Lord. After becoming professing believers, each person was baptized, and the process was uh, a process that gave us the term catechumen. You probably heard that if you've been in the Catholic tradition. It's a Latin word that means that there's someone who is in the process of preparing to become a Christian. Catechumens spent as much as three years preparing. Their lives were observed carefully to see if, in fact, the faith in Christ that they proclaimed was changing the way they lived and the way they spoke. And then when they were baptized, well, it might as well have been the waters of baptism were a deep, impossible to remove dye because once people were covered in the waters of baptism, their lives were so markedly different that everyone around them knew it. And, of course, that put them at odds with those whose loyalties were devoted in other directions. New Christians came from every sect and every part of life. And this was a real affront to the class-conscious Romans who were not comfortable with certain kinds of people being allowed to join in regular fellowship. In other words, they very much resisted the idea that Christians were welcoming anybody into their world. In fact, one of the first bishops of the church in the early days started out as a slave. His name was Callistus, and in 217, the year 217, he became one of the first bishops 
And in those days, that wasn't a big deal. That just meant that he provided oversight in much the same way the Apostle Paul did of the various churches that he had planted. And so this was definitely something that was offensive to the Romans, that a slave would rise to a position of authority over others, even others who might well be Roman citizens. So the whole thing was, was offensive to them. But this is why they did it. And if you want to understand what they were thinking, all you have to do is read the words of the Apostle Paul, because he was the director of their movement in so many ways. And this is what he said, and Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And preeminent means first and foremost. So if we truly want to understand we begin with that. Christ became number one for them. Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that all things he might have pre preeminence. We heard that one. According to his good pleasure, which he proposed, uh, excuse me, purposed in himself that in the dis dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. In other words, he's the boss of it all. That's what it's saying. Paul said in his letter to the Ephesians, something you might remember from a few weeks ago, God has put all things under Christ's feet and given him the headship over all things to the church. Paul will say in other places that Christ Jesus holds the universe together, and he means that in a very scientific way. He means that Jesus is holding it all together, and if he let go of the wheel, the thing would completely blow apart. That's, that's the authority that Christ has over all of creation. So, to put this idea, this change of mindset in perspective, I want to give you a, an imaginary scenario here. Something in our context that you can relate to. I want you to imagine that you are at a uh, function of some sort and the leader of that function invites everyone to stand and recite the Pledge of Allegiance. And then they begin to speak and you know the words, right? You know, we were all drilled on that from day one in our grade school and the public schools. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands. And then out of the corner of your eye, you notice there's a woman sitting at a table nearby who hasn't risen and has not joined in the saying of those words. And perhaps this is someone you know. And you know they were born in this country and raised in the same country and went to school with you and they know the words to this pledge. And you, so you ask their, this friend politely after the function is over, so, so how come you didn't stand and say the Pledge of Allegiance? And your friend says, well, I just can't say I pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic because I've already pledged allegiance to Jesus Christ as my Lord. That's what those early Christians were doing, you see. They were throwing aside patriotism. They were throwing aside pagan idolatry. And we Christians, we don't find it difficult to imagine 
that if we were challenged to somehow profess publicly our faith in Satan or in some pagan god, that we would resist that. But what these folks were doing was they were pledging their allegiance to Christ above all else, above family, above nation, above everything. Now, in case you're afraid that this is an indication that something like Snooky's honor flight is somehow invalid, let me just say that uh, Sergeant York, remember that movie? It's about a real person, the most decorated soldier of World War I from the United States. And uh, he, he struggled with the same thing. He had given all of his allegiance to Christ and he couldn't figure out how he was going to go into a situation where he would be the, sub, the, the subject of his military authorities and then that he would actually be engaged in killing. And then he realized that Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. So your allegiance to Christ supersedes your allegiance to everything else, but he asks you nonetheless to be his witness even within this world. The difference is, and this is what I want you to know, the difference is found in the fact that Jesus doesn't look at you as citizens of the United States. He sees you as slaves. Jesus sees you as slaves, not to the United States, but to the world, to the citizenship of sin. Jesus views you before you give your allegiance to him as a slave to sin and death, as one who is subjugated by your flesh and the things of the flesh. And if there's not a better place than the church and the pulpit to say this, I don't know where it is. So I'm gonna tell you that one of the things we do when we come into the church each week is we are reminded that we're citizens of Christ's kingdom and not citizens of the world. We're not of the world anymore, even though we're in the world. And so that means categorically that your authority or that the authority of Christ becomes your authority that his leadership over your life is more important than any other source of leadership in your life and there's no more important place where he is the lord of your life than over you and that means you have taken your leadership of your life and set it aside so that Christ might be the leader of your life. And so if we were to look at ourselves in the same way that the early Christians looked at themselves as they became citizens of Christ's kingdom, we would be looking at ourselves as one who had given up his natural citizenship and claimed citizenship in another country. It would be like being born and raised in the United States and then moving to a foreign country and accepting citizenship there and categorically rejecting the citizenship of your birth. That's what they were doing. They were expressing absolute commitment to the kingdom of Christ, even sometimes at the cost of their lives, because they would not declare Caesar as Lord of their lives. Now, what I find interesting and ironic is that in the world of Christendom today, 
and probably throughout all time, because I'm a reader and I've read the works of those who were with Christians interacting with them hundreds of years ago, and it seems like a universal problem. There are many people who accept Jesus's emancipation proclamation. They accept the idea that Jesus has declared you free from sin and death, that he has made you clean, he has made you new, and you are no longer a citizen of the world of sin and death. But so many take it only that far and no further. They do not subject themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He freed you so that you could become a citizen of his kingdom. Now, I got to thinking about that this week, and I realized that what that makes those people who have accepted the freedom but not accepted the Lordship of Christ, it makes them feral in their faith. It makes feral faith. A feral is the word that describes an animal that's running wild. It's, not free. it's free because it's not being chained or caged or kept in anyone's home, and yet it is running free and it's wild and it's not under anyone's authority. And that's what we call a feral, like a feral cat or a dog. You see those sometimes running in the woods and sometimes feral domesticated animals become sort of a wild species in and of themselves, like the wild boar. So are we Christians who are big boars? I don't know. That's what I get for ad-libbing. <laughs> A half-hearted chuckle. What I want you to know is today's the day. It's the day, this very day, that you can declare that you want to be a citizen of Christ's kingdom and not just a feral Christian, running wild and free, but under no particular authority. Today is the day. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, he said. And of course, the people of his hometown in Nazareth decided that he was crazy and they took him to the cliff to throw him over the edge because of his radical claim. But what we understand is, is that when you accept his freedom from sin and death, you must also accept his offer of citizenship in the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ is not a worldly kingdom. It's not a kingdom where you go to a particular land. You know, we're going to visit Israel soon, many of us, and we're going to visit the place where a lot of historical events happened related to the core values of Christianity and Judaism. But in the end, that's not the kingdom of Christ. And we have a national cathedral in Washington, D.C., but that's not the kingdom of Christ. This church is not the kingdom of Christ. This is a building at 1971 State Road 56 West. That's what it is. You see, the kingdom of Christ only exists where kingdom citizens exist. And so what Jesus wants you to be is his kingdom, and his kingdom is seen in you. And if there are many of us who are citizens of the kingdom gathered in one place, then that certainly looks like the kingdom of Christ. And that is our goal. That is, in essence, 
what we've been talking about every Sunday since we started going to church is acting like citizens of the kingdom. But here's the thing. I find myself every now and again explaining to other Christians, many times Christians who are of a more radically devoted group. I, I, I don't know how to explain that to you, but when you're in the mission field, for example, and you meet people for whom Christianity has cost them everything, when you meet people who are living like the ones we've been talking about in the early church, and they ask about this big denominational church that I serve as pastor where our people come in comfort every week to worship and they help if they want to and they serve if they want to. They ask me about that and then they'll really grill me about whether I'm comfortable and whether I only do what I feel like doing. And my answer is always this, I don't know why, but God called me to be the pastor of such a church and he's been calling me back every time I've tried to give it up and turn away from it. Every time I've said, this isn't for me, he's said, this is exactly where I want you to be. And the only thing I can figure is, is that he's made me someone who has been called specifically to walk the perimeter of the kingdom of Christ, to grab everyone who's got one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world and pull as hard as I can to get you all the way into the kingdom and out of the world. And today, I'm grabbing anybody who will listen, and I'm asking you to join me in the kingdom of Christ. I'm pulling you in as best I can, but I can't make you. You have to decide today if being free from sin and death is all you want or need from Christ, or whether you're willing to go all the way in with Christ as your king. Today, we're celebrating World Communion Sunday, and in its heart, this was an event that was designed in order to create a sort of international fellowship of the kingdom of Christ. It was meant to be a way of expressing our unity as the kingdom of Christ, that all the citizens of the kingdom might join at one table at one time. And so all over the world where people participate in World Communion Sunday, they are in spirit joining with you at the Lord's table, at the King's table. And that's what we celebrate as we come to that table now. So let us pray. Almighty God, I thank you for your word. And now I ask that you impart your spirit to those who are ready to receive full citizenship in the kingdom. That you would push them out of the world and fully into your kingdom. And Lord, I thank you for the calling, our shared calling that causes us to devote ourselves to your perfect will in all that we do and say, and not just in the assurance of heaven when we die. We give our lives to you and give all the glory to you, Lord Jesus. Amen.